Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that's because you're either listening live or you've happened upon a pre-edit copy of the Scoob Obsessed Netcast. Come back in a few hours and we'll have an edited version all ready for you. Scoob Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba the news. Scoob Obsessed 152 is recorded live August 13th. 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the west side of Michigan where I have returned. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And it is beautiful weather. Now, it could be a tad bit warmer just so we know that we're in August, but be careful what you wish for. But it has been some nice weather. We did get a little bit of rain. What day was that that we had rain? Is that earlier in the week? It's, it's all blurring together now. It had to have been early because I spent last night and the night before, after midnight outside, looking for meteors for the meteor shower. Oh, well, how'd that go? Well, that's a subject. That's a different subject. But anyway, yesterday, last night was worse than the night before, meaning being able to see stuff. But I had more meteors last night. But I only saw a couple of good ones with tails. You know, you got. I feel it's like a half an inch of a streak and then a big poof white, yeah. you know, like bang. And just well, they need to schedule yeah. those during the day hours if they want more uh, viewers. Well, you got to be up around four o'clock, and I'm usually back inside way before four. Yeah, my wife last night was was talking about. She goes, you know, it start. It's like the best viewing between two and four a.m. Yeah, and that was not going to happen. Yeah, I was thinking about that. But I, I stayed out there, and mosquitoes found me. So I huddled in a chair out in the backyard until about 1, and I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I might have, uh, you know, what I need to do is drink a gallon of water, and then I'm sure about 2 a.m. Would, would be when I'd be up. Yeah. Yeah, the airlines are, you know, the airwaves in the sky, because oh, yeah. you will see those guys in a pattern at a known frequency, excuse me, at a known frequency. Well, I kept thinking, maybe it'll be a UFO. Maybe it'll be a UFO. <laughs> they're, they're, they're never when you're looking for them. No, or you got your camera ready yeah, to go. It's going to be your phone's dead, you're out of gas, you're middle of nowhere. Your camera battery is dead. Yeah. it's. You could... Yeah, you're going to believe that, too. <laughs> so let's jump right on in with the news. A follow-up on an article we had talked about. Out of Wisconsin, Surgeon, Surgeon, you know those Surgeon Bays, Sturgeon Bay, designated designated on the National Register of Historic Places. The Lakeland shipwreck located near Sturgeon Bay has been listed on National Register of Historic Places. Wisconsin Historic Society, historical, announced a designation earlier this week, which qualifies a shipwreck for grants and tax why does a shipwreck need grants and tax credits? Because we know the shipwreck doesn't. It's for the people who uh, and trying to make some more money out of it. Oh goodness! It's like but, why? Why? Okay. Uh, Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer Diana Perconas said the important designate places like the preservation. Beginning as a bulk freighter in 1886, at Lakeland's demise in 1924, it was one of the earliest Great Lake losses to be photographed. That's not even true. You can learn more about the Lakeland other shipwrecks at Wisconsin. Weasel words, one of 
Pecanus has gone into process of picking the Lakeland for designation stream. Well, the pictorial they have there is very nice. And if you're a grubber, not to take anything, but to photograph grubbing things, that would be very nice. I really don't see what the depth is, but the visibility in this particular photo is very, very good. That is an excellent photo. And I like how stuff destroy the integrity of that car, for example, that's in front of the boat. Yeah. I, I like how everything's laid out. It's, they don't seem to get the silt build up and the sand movement that we do on this side. Yeah, you can see in part to this that it looks like clay. It's clear. Then you got sediment and the tires of that car, what's left of it. Yeah, because it looks like you know, they say this is uh, 19 or last 90 years, they've only had maybe two or three inches of bottom buildup. Now, some of those could be the sand higher in other places, what we're seeing in the photo. Yeah. But hopefully it works out for them and what they wanted to get done. It's just, a, you know, it, from a standpoint of some sort of recognition, I guess it's kind of neat. Every area wants to have their thing, but not sure what the purpose is. How many times can you protect them? I don't know. Now, from 1924, from itself. Because I'm a grumpy old man. <laughs> I was looking at some of the other comments. Yeah. Uh, people in that area that live there in that I've flown over to many, 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 many. If this wreck is going to get grant money, should the others as well? Then to be able to close the fairgrounds in Sturgeon Bay and move the dirty air and noise polluting racetrack. So I think <laughs> we'll say they're going to spend money. There may be other items. Could the shipwreck possibly be on the west side of Sturgeon Bay, like near the new hotel condo that is being rammed through? So <laughs> it's like maybe a model that you come up with. But yeah, we, we didn't invent it this time. Bottom line is I'd like to go there and try that dive. There's lots of wreckage. Uh, looks like a fun thing. Yeah, let's, uh, let me see. Can we figure out how deep that is? I couldn't tell if that was a picture that... A diver the light 60, 70 feet at most from that pictorial. I'm going to consult the great big book of everything. Uh, the Oracle. Let's see. It's a 280-foot freighter. All right. Okay, Shipwreck Explorer. Up that picture. Okay. She lies in 200 feet of water, upright and intact. The Lakeland carried a group of, car of uh, cargo of cars and packaged goods, including Canadian, built as the Cambria, and it was renamed in 1910. The vessel was built in 1887, Globe Ironworks of Cleveland. 280 feet by 40 by 20. Depth to deck is 165 feet or 50 meters. Depth to bottom 200 feet or 60 meters. So the deck level is what the bottom is on the Ann Arbor 5. Which means techie diver and you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Which also means not a lot of recreational sport divers will get out there or ever see it. No, there won't be many. But darn it, it looked neat. It does. It's a good picture. Well, that kind of explains a little bit of why some of the stuff is still there. And, uh, and converted from a bulk freighter to passenger to a combination passenger and package freight steamer in 1910, she sprang a link and foundered. Foul play has never proven. She's one of the first three streamers in the Great Lakes to have triple expansion engine. Unique triple expansion. I'm trying to remember. I'd have to ask my dad. He he kind of knows who had triple and you know the couple of the quads that were out there. 18, 1887. Okay, it kind of makes sense for when that was because that that's in the, about the twenty years where that was really going. 
December 4th. Okay, so we've got only of a minute bit pushing for new regulations and just to get started, like the sympathy goes to anybody who's lost anybody scuba diving. And we don't mean to make light of it, but do we really need some more regulations? The family of the who died in a diving accident off Vancouver Island is pushing the, for changes to British Columbia's scuba diving industry. Timothy Chu, a 20-year-old experienced diver, who was a dive on July 5th when he was reportedly swept away by strong current. Despite an extensive, his body was never found. This week, his family came to Vancouver Island from Hong Kong to visit the area where Chu disappeared. The family met with RCMP, and a diving guide who was with Chu when he was, when he was swept away as a search for answers in his death. Calling Chu's death preventable, said the area was registered 5.5 knots at the time that's a speed that the family considers dangerous. They're now asking the province to introduce new rules for an industry they say is largely undread. Possibly man endeavors where a dive watch that carries a G indicator and a surface marker buoy says province could save number of lives rescued if better for the diving get in place. We hope that there's a legacy of Tim, said Timothy Choose Uncle Bill Chu to somehow cause the legislation to be changed. Chu's family held an emotional prayer race rocks during their visit to the island. They also thanked volunteers who helped in the search, including one of whom gave Timothy's mother a gift of a shawl that was dropped in the water near race rocks at the time of the accident as a gift to reminder of the hugs from Timothy, explained Joshua to Chu. The family is offering a symbolic gift of $2,000 for anyone who helps find the body of Timothy Chu. And I can understand that, you know, they're heartbroken and it's a tragic event, but everything that they said, he could have on his own had. An experienced diver, so they're trying to downplay that it was a mistake on his part, but if you're out diving, instead he have a safety sausage which everybody who's out and die if you're going to be away from shore should have one. That's our opinion. That's a, the, certainly my opinion. I right. right. Well I have that myself. When we're like, like shallow water, yeah, you can get away with that because it's easy. You've got your dive flag also with you. You know what I'm saying? I think now, the, you know that when we're out there on offshore, especially diving wrecks where there is current, you definitely want a safety sausage because when you got two and three foot waves, you can't see that guy sitting there in the trough trying to make noises. Yeah. And for those who might not understand what a safety sausage is, just think of a long tube where it's actually uh, about four or five inches and feet. It's usually made of vial, vinyl that's it's to get, and you put air into it. Sometimes they have a closed bottom, sometimes it's open. Uh, but you put air into it, and it, it just makes this big inflated tube, kind of like a really skinny lift bag. And you put one end down in the water, and it causes it to stand up, and it makes you a, a lot more visible when you're out there. Not to mention, a lot of them have a pocket in it that you can put a chem light, so it'll be illuminated, especially at night or a strobe. Yep. They also have a radar reflector. Or even putting a CD in there gives you that reflection surface. Yeah, and, and reflector. If you if you're on a boat who, who's out in the water and they're looking, that's something that the radar that some of these larger boats would have have an anomaly, and it would help clue them in maybe where you're at. Right. But you've got that. You've also got these EPERPs, which I also think is a good item. It's just it's a, it can be a little expensive, and everybody's got to take their own decision on how much money they want to spend. I think you can get the personal ones, which they're in a waterproof case with a battery. Some of them, uh, you can have a panic switch. Uh, some of them, when you get to the... So it depends on what its condition, why 
you know, he got swept away how long before something happened. I mean, Ed instantly was unconscious. That's a little bit different uh, situation than if he had been, if he was floating for a couple of days and then, uh, but it's always good to have some of these items and you, it's, it's up to you to decide how safe you want to be. Uh, Patty is advanced divers, uh, advanced diving. They cover these items that, that they recommend. Uh, and it's, it's a trade-off between, you know, making the sport too expensive and making it accessible. Well, to me, it's really, what is your safety worth you? And again, if you have problems and you drown and you're on the bottom, that doesn't help a bit. You've got to be on the surface for the GPS to work. Any of the signals they might have, radio or otherwise. So part of it is you've got to still have control to get buoyant and on the surface for whatever you do have to work, sausage or other device. Yeah. In the case of where you couldn't deploy that, you were already expired, then it, it, it doesn't point other than recovery and for the family. Yeah. Uh, personal locator beacon, if, if I'm out playing myself doing saves, it's not a bad idea to have that. I mean, a cell phone is good, and it'll do the same thing, basically, if you know you've got reception where you're going to be. If you got reception, and I personally wouldn't take my cell phone out there in the water just because of cost. Again, you know, it's not as expensive in some cases as the uh, emergency device, but it's still a lot of money to have kits. Well, that's why you buy those uh, the ten dollar ten dollar phones, <laughs> the, the ones that drug drug dealers use. Well, basically, you might say that, or, or jumpers use the same thing. You get a cheap phone because they're going to dummy it up and break it or lose it. You know, yeah. it, you're not off that much money. You're not going to take your iPhone with you. Oh, I see. Because that one you could actually you keep in your in your float like we normally have. So yeah. if I had a heart attack, I'm going to come up and flip it open. If I'm dead, it doesn't make any difference. They're going to find me because they got my flag tied to my body. Yeah. No, no. But again, good idea of money, I'd probably have a real super-duper one. But when you're out in the big lakes, uh, yeah. that system, at least having a man overboard on your boat, is really... Mm-hmm. Now, so what, could the, what could the boat have done? Uh, because they knew right away that something had happened. If you were thinking, could you have thrown some sort of float in the water to travel with him? Generally, that's what you would do. Uh, that way, if you if you throw another one out, and they're floating on the surface, you got a reference point for how far did one travel before the second one released. And then, if you know the current flow and that's representative of the floating body, you have an idea where you should be looking if they're on the surface. And in. It's kind of one spot we didn't really cover. We we mentioned a little bit before the show, but they said the the current was registering five and a half knots, which is pretty freaking strong. Yeah, so that's that's zipping by, and yeah, uh, yeah it's it's up to everybody to determine what is dangerous. Now you you've dove in five and a half knots. Let me rephrase that. I've not. I have dove in it but I go with the current because you're not going to swim against it. No. Now, if you go to St. Clair, and that's probably the fastest, so one of the fastest ones around here because we don't have a lot of tides, but the the Detroit River in that area, St. Clair River, averages probably four knots. Depending on the time of day, the phase of the moon, all sorts of variables, I've seen it anywhere from averaging two and a half to a little over four knots, and that's just surface. It's, it's enough... On a, on a good day, you get there and you try to be on a wreck, you'll look out to the to the blowy side, it'll rip your mask off. It'll give you a free flow. Yes. All right, and that's why you do the Superman dive and you go with the flow, and that's when you definitely want to have visibility. And, and that's really a, a matter of perspective. If you're going with it, you can have an enjoyable dive at those speeds. But if, yeah. you're, if, you're, if you're fighting against it or if you're on a line, 
that's uh, which is basically making you stationary five and a half knot waters yeah. that's that can be rough that's not fun at all no now how fast do you think it was the cooper river when we we're in there uh well depends that one when i was <laughs> I, I had to hook in the bottom and i'm just being dragged for the whole freaking hour <laughs> yeah uh, that one i bet that was every bit of three knots yes I, I, if I had a good purchase, I could go against it, but it wasn't giving me a free flow. Yeah, but it, I did not enjoy that one, and, and zero of it is going backward. It was hard to to do what you were trying to do while you were down there. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, I, I was able to get purchased a few times, and you could move against the current, but it was a lot of work. Yeah. And then we have a group raising money in Ohio for breast cancer. This one's out of Gibsonburg, Ohio, 25 feet below the surface. Carol Hall and her husband, Mike, mauled past the second cabin of a cruiser, and that's in the photo in the article. You can see all our links in the show notes, so you can go back to the original sources, give them some click love. And this one is actually done in Gibsonburg at White Star Quarry, which is the home of a friend of ours, Rich Sinewick. Sink, and also you need to check out his podcast, Divers Sink. I think I said that twice. It's, it's Divers Incorporated, his dive shop. Divers Sink is the podcast. Uh, but he had, uh, let's see, what day was this? This was in August. August 1st, they had the sixth annual Dive Hope Breast Cancer Fundraiser for the Breast Cancer Fund of Ohio, the event, the event through Divers from throughout Ohio, neighboring pays roughly $17,000, according to organizer Brian Miller. Uh, Miller was of Baltimore, was from Baltimore. He was a manufacturer sale rep for diving equipment maker Aqualog, who was the main sponsor for the event. He inspired to organize the event by watching his grandniece battle leukemia. And there was a lot of dive shops that were there. There's a lot of prizes, and hopefully next year we'll have to keep an eye out for it. That would be one I'd like to go to. They had a lot of uh, fundraising, a lot of good items. They did a silent auction. The deals were pretty nice. It's a good event, a worthwhile cause. Okay, I've got through all my pre-loaded articles. Now I've got to go back and go through Internet hell and try and The next wonder. Well, next one you're doing, which is going to be on water rescue. T- I mean, yeah, they never say too much about the rescue teams that we have in our area, and especially out west where they have their flash floods. Oh, and yes. they're, they're sorely needed. And this year was a good example out there, out west. I was watching a TV program last week, and they were showing a flash flood and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It looked like pudding moving down a dried riverbed because it had this, you know, the, the water, the, in the case of flash flood, the rain's maybe 20, 50 miles away and they come down and it was, they had a video just showing it moving and all the debris and everything that's caught into it. And if you weren't paying attention, and like how we talked about in the last article, the speed, you can't run that quick. That can, if you're there when that happens, it's, it's pretty much going to be fatal. Uh, and this water rescue team, the training monthly, it was formed in 2000. And uh, the, the team was formed in May of 2000 after drowning the river where rescuers needed more than two hours to locate the victim. It was really unorganized. He said the decision was then made for the original eight members to seek out training and certification as public safety divers. So this is out of Cumberland, do they say? Everybody assumes you know where they're at. (laughs) Cumberland. Rhode Island? That's not where I was expecting. I wasn't either. I was thinking Cumberland Gap, things like that. Yeah, all, all, all bad songs going through my head. 
but they've gone through and gotten certification. The team's done quite well. They have a 16-foot trailer designated Marine One, housed at the Cumberland Rescue Headquarters, to provide equipment storage and a place to change into and out of gear for the members. Trailer also includes an inflatable rapid deployment craft stored in a two-foot by two-foot bag. can be inflated 14-foot long, four feet wide, one minute using a scuba air tank. So they've got training and uh, they've got rescue training. They've got ice training. Uh, Shields is a certified water rescue instructor, ice rescue instructor, swift water rescue instructor. He's currently training to become a scuba instructor. And uh, he says he's providing water and safety presentations to all schools within the town, the Boys and Girls Club, and Cumberland High School Aquatics Program. So it's important to make people aware. You know, the worst, the thing that's worse than one tragedy is two, <laughs> and that seems to happen. You can't say too much about these people because generally, like volunteer fire departments, it's the people in the in the neighborhood in the area that are providing this service on their time, their dime, to make you safer. Yeah. So, all of those guys. Yeah, so support them as much as they can, because uh, it's, it's a challenge. Keep the money justified, but you'll group. It's all volunteer. They're buying their own gear, and they're doing a, a needed service that benefits the community. Now, as a side note, I can't remember which one of our fire departments around here uh, could not get funding for their river rescue for a boat because they only had one rescue requirement at five years but what they did do was they bought a new device it's uh, basically a buoy gun and it shoots a line up to 300 feet when it hits the water at the end of the line is an inflatable vest so within 300 feet they can shoot that to you and give you a chance to put on something that's going to float through in the neck and toe you in. And that's some of the challenge we have. And it may be a needed challenge, but like here in the town that I live in, our fire department does have a water rescue team. Uh, they it's, it's administered by the fire department. Uh, they have a boat. Uh, now we have, a, in the town, the river runs right through the center. It's a very popular river. There's a lot of activity. So by the fire department having that boat, it enables them to do quick response. And the alternative would be members of the fire department using their own boat. So it's a little misleading to say that there's uh, for another group to not have a need because they didn't respond. It just means that people didn't necessarily get in trouble. Uh, well, you, you know what was interesting about that aspect, what you're talking about, getting in trouble? Do you realize that if that fire department or system has that 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 train that gun to be able to shoot a line out and try to rescue somebody, mm -hmm. that because of having that in their possession, if all the people in that department are not trained on using it, and then a a, a fatality occurs, they can then be sued because they didn't have trained qualified personnel to use the equipment which they had, which could have saved the person. Which yeah. then a lot of people say, well, I just won't get it then. Well, and that's and that's unfortunately with a litigious society what we've got to go through. Um, and you know, I, if you want to look at probably the, some of the best trained or people who receive the most training, it's the fire departments around here. It's a ridiculous amount of training. I I would like to do it, but I can't. I couldn't have devoted the time. I was on the sheriff's department. And the firemen were, were out training us two to three times. Yeah, the, 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 to, to be proficient and to keep yourself safe, you have to practice. And that requires dedication and time of the people because, again, most of that volunteer. Yeah, you've got to practice. You're, you're practicing skills that you practiced previously. It, it's every two to three years you're, you're, getting, you're renewing that training. Now, kind of back on the local the fire departments, we also have at the county level, which we, we've we've done some work with them in the past, that they have a rescue team. So you've got this lap 
which it's not a bad overlap, but the county level, it's not as much of a quick response because by the time you in the county, by the time you get the count and they go out, you've got at least 30 to 40 minutes in warm weather. Uh, if somebody's underwater, 40 minutes is too long. Generally around here, it's recovery. It's not saving. Yes. Uh, now, where that boat that uh, Bering Springs has used is it's a, you call it, it's like a bass boat, and they've got uh, something that flips out the front of it, kind of a deck. You know, uh, say they were skiing and they got hit by another boat or it's it's hard to muscle them in over the side of a boat. They've got this platform that they can flip out that's about water level that you can roll somebody on and then you can get them back into a boat ramp. Very nice. I like going. In fact, uh, coming up this next week, for those who listen to the podcast, next week won't be the show like we normally do. I think we may do a best of. Uh, but we have the fair, and they do have one day. So if you're in Bering County, Michigan, you want to go to the youth fair, they do have a safety day where all the different divisions and departments bring out their gear. So if you want to see what the Coast Guard's using or the water rescue team, the dive, the ethical response unit, you get to see all that stuff, you know, ask questions up close. You know, geek out on that stuff. So if you want to volunteer like these people do, uh, maybe you don't have as much time, but they, there are some opportunities. Look around. Connecticut River Watershed Council is organizing a river cleanup this fall. This out of Saxons River, Vermont. They said it's going to be the Connecticut River Watershed Council's 19th annual Source to Sea Cleanup. Be held Friday and Saturday, September 25th and 26th, 2015. They said there are several ways that you can be involved in the cleanup. You can report trash that site that needs cleaning up. You can find a cleanup group near you to join, or organize and register your own local cleanup group. They give a website, which is www.ctriver.org/cleanup. The Source to See Cleanup is a two-day event. And it involves four states, 410-plus miles of Connecticut River Basin from New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Thousands of volunteers are expected to participate. And some people are on foot, some are on boat. So they need volunteers of all sorts. Some remove trash along the river, streams, park, boat launches, trails, and more. Because if it's on the bank, it's going to eventually end up in the river. In 2014, 2,000 volunteers hauled 47 tons of trash. To date, 879 tons of trash had been removed from polluting the rivers. I've not seen anything of that magnitude in our area. It would be... Well, it sounds like they, what they've done, and they, and being as long as they've done it, they organized it slowly over time. Uh, but you have a nice long river that touches many states, and you gave you a good platform, 410 miles. That's a long way. And so you can get it motivated. They're consistent. They've, they've done it regularly. They're probably well organized. And uh, they're doing it grassroots where they've got, you know, many hands make light work. Uh, for us around here, other than the Great Lakes themselves, there's not that many long rivers. You know, St. Joe, which we're on, uh, that does come, I think it, it goes down to South Bend and then back into Michigan. Does it go back into Indiana again? Yeah. So, so it goes back between Michigan and Indiana. I'm going to guess that'd probably be maybe a hundred miles. Uh, there are there are some groups, but I haven't seen anything quite this well organized. And part of the big issue with that is, what do you do with the stuff when you bring it up? You have to have a way of disposing it that does not cost the volunteer something. Right, the volunteer shouldn't be shouldering the expense for removal. Right. 
I'm thinking of organizing groups to get a uh, able to get a you know a municipal dump or somebody to be involved uh, you know work on a garbage collection organization maybe they'd be interested yeah as soon as you start bringing up refrigerators junk cars bulky items you need a place to dispose of it and how are you going to get that junk car out of water that's some of that stuff my own that's that's why they've got the program where they're asking people to identify stuff yeah. So they've obviously got some pre-planning they're going to do. So you're going to have just some random collecting of, of garbage as well as, uh, I can remember in the 70s and 80s, there would be some cleanups that would happen. The rivers were, it looked like somebody's house had just been completely packed. And then here we go. This one's off uh, Florida. Reef building begins off Beavard Coast, Brevard Coast, B-R-E-V-A-R-D, on uh, Friday of last week, deployment began for 72 tons of man-made artificial modules. They said it was accumulation of more than a year's worth of work between several uh, fishing-related nonprofits in Brevard County. The Florida Sports Fishing Association has been an active reef building program in cooperation with the Canaveral Port Authority for the past decade. Friday's efforts marked the first time since 1995 that the has been involved in reef building. We started this work with the county just after the 2004 hurricane season. The FSFA was involved in a number of cleanup projects for derelict vessels overseen by the Brevard County. Several derelict vessels, including concrete and metal hull vessels, were ideal for reef use, but first they had to be decontaminated to make sure they didn't pose a threat to marine life or environment. He said, we were on the lookout for approved materials, and sometimes they can be really fine, but we were able to get these ready and deploy them on a on the uh, culvert site, now I see peop- more people fishing there in the fish than Trobata, the 27 Fathom Ridge. And it looks like they were, so what they did in the Brevard Reef area, which they say covers 4.4 square miles or 3,000 acres, uh, there are concrete structures. That each module is a 10-foot square footprint. Several whole uh, there's secret that are manufactured of marine-grade concrete. Uh, Twenty-four of them, fifty thousand dollars. So it's about two and a half grand per concrete piece. Is that just six to make? It sounds like it. That, that's interesting from the aspect of what's allowable type of materials. Never really thought about what that actually means. Well, I mean, try not to do the mistake they did with the tires. Uh, but also, I think there's a specific uh, type of concrete they want to use because you can have different mixtures of concrete and they don't want something that uh, creates the wrong pH or other problems, so they may come there. They not want to use in the marine that if they're going to be in the marine environment. So if we can find the money, we'd like to do this every year. It just helps fishing and diving get better and better. Hats off to them. They're doing a real good job. It looks like it's paying off in dividends on giving habitats for more fish, which is always good for the ocean. I think something like that would that would be a go really well around here. And that sixty foot depth probably would be. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at the price they spent all together. It looks like about a hundred thousand dollars on it. Thousand 
screening permitting process, which they said they started three years ago. Then you've got the concrete, which is another $60,000. Then you've got logistics and placing it in the water. I'm sure that their price didn't include that. And here's something that's nice. They give you the reef coordinates in the the article. And you can be sure if you're a fisherman, you want those coordinates. Yeah, you just go out there and look for the spot where all the boats are bobbing around. <laughs> yes. Yeah. See, and, and that's where, you know, they say it's good for divers and anglers. I think the the better it is for anglers, the worse it is for divers. Right. The extra out there in front of uh, the waterworks is really great for perch. Uh-huh. So you're not going to be diving in the tunnels or the, that structure when they're out there. Right. It's kind of whoever's there first yeah. gets to use it. And the thing is, if you're a fisherman, wait the divers out. They don't have a lot of air. They're not going to be down there forever. Go find yeah. another spot. You can come back, and they'll, they'll get off it. Uh, now, how's this for a find? A teenager finds a gold bar while swimming. This is in the German Alps. The police are currently trying to figure out the source of the gold bar. The teenager made an unexpected find while swimming in a lake in the German Alps, a 500-gram or 17.6-ounce bar of gold. Police said Wednesday they were trying to figure out where the bar comes from and how it got to the Klongadies Lake. <laughs> Everybody from Germany is groaning. A popular tourist destination near, oh, my goodness. Garden. Oh, very good. I've been on that lake, and that's... Uh, I love Birch's Garden, too, by the way. Nice and you place. left a gold bar there? What can I say? I wasn't diving at that time. <laughs> and I bordered with Austria. A 16-year-old girl who was on vacation found it about two meters. Maybe I just was thinking that. 16-year-old girl who was on vacation found it about two meters, six and a half feet under the surface on Friday and handed it to police. Divers on Tuesday carried out through a search of the area to see if there's any more. Oh, heck yeah. What does part about handed it to police? I don't understand that part. <laughs> Something's wrong. Well, and that's one thing. I don't know what the rules are over there, but I hope if they fail to identify who it goes to, she yeah. get to keep it. Now, looking at that, they show a picture of it. That where at the bottom. See, if you look at that image. I would have normally expected to see some other figure in this yeah. because that lake is supposed to have got other such as that oh. in it. Is it? Well, they're just saying it's 99.9 and the USSA or is that a USSR? A little hard to look at that. D-E-G-U-S-S, yeah. The scrape marks along the bottom is what really interests me. Yeah, like a prop hit it. Oh, okay. As it dropped out of the boat, the prop hit it. I guess that could be. Yeah. I, I was just wondering if maybe somebody had, oh, it, just, it was a funny wear mark to me, but I guess if a prop hit it, that would make sense. I, you know, when they said divers on Tuesday carried a thorough search, I hope they italicized quotes on both sides of the thorough because <laughs> I shouldn't be out there looking around. <laughs> well, then also, did, who, who checked the guys who were looking for it? The girl was honest. Who knows about the people? <laughs> what the yeah, are these like, bars? Wait, four, three. Well, yeah, they, they got people like you and me out there. You know, we're honest. <laughs> they're in trouble. <laughs> If I went out for official business, I'd turn it over. I I, I don't know. That would be one where you'd like to say you wouldn't, but I'd be too darn honest. I'd give it. I'd have to give it back. Darn it. <laughs> Question is, give it back to who? Yeah. Well, I would certainly be following up on it, making sure that they just don't sit on it and then sell it at a an auction. And how about this for finding something? Identity that's Finnish shipwreck millionaire is currently a mystery. Ninety years ago, 
the Canteva steamboat sending its payload of 290 metric tons of copper sank. This is in the Baltic Sea. They said the current market value of the copper is estimated at 1 million euros. They said they still have no clues who the rightful owner may be. Around a week ago, a group of divers completed their investigation of the wreck at 90-year-old steamship laden with copper. The vessel was discovered in the Lagascar. I'm sure I didn't roll the right vowel there. Island in the Island Archipelago in 2013. Anteva, the steamboat sank to the bottom of the Baltic Sea near the entrance of the Gulf of Bothnia between Finland and Sweden. The marine archaeologist says he's confident he has established the vessel as the can Teva due to its location, make, and fittings. According to ship's papers, one of the owners around the year 1925 was a certain Juho Kaskin, a farmer, MP, a municipal advisor, according to and ownership of the vessel. However, is who does the nearly one million? This is where they talk about the law. They said it's a little bit more complicated uh, than this finder's keepers. Although it's maybe possible to identify the boat's rightful owners, that doesn't mean that they have legal right content. The Finnish state cannot claim the bounty as it's been less than 100 years since the vessel sank. Therefore, the wreck is not considered a protected site. They said also, since gold, uh, copper from this era may contain gold, it could be worth even more. They said, I had to extract the precious metal, so it's likely gold is buried within the less valuable metal. I didn't realize that. So in the 1900s, we still didn't have the technology to get gold out of copper. Not to the extent that we do now. Okay. Isn't worth as much or than to the amount of effort it would take to extract. Uh, Do they say how deep that was? I, I saw something in here of uh, 100 meters, 90 meters. Yeah. Couldn't tell if that was the depth. Yeah, the dives that followed extended to 90 meters. Yeah. So that's not something you're going to casually go down to and work with either. Well, and that's why they said that it had been missing so long is because the location, they said, is real hard and it wasn't really obvious that was there. And that's deep. So a million dollars in material. They just need to go and figure out who's got who who it belongs to. Yeah. And talking about finding something, this would be an, an excellent find to have in a shipwreck. Many times a week, there's a lot to. They had the figurehead. This is the 15th century shipwreck. The wreck of the Gribschuden. The vessel is thought to have sunk in 1495 in the waters off Sweden. It is considered to be one of the best preserved of its kind. The wooden figurehead is of a sea monster with ears like... Was carefully lifted from the sea in southern Sweden on Tuesday by divers bringing up treasure from the wreck of a 15th century Danish warship. The figure it came back from the wreck of Gribschuden, which is believed to have sunk in 1495 after it caught fire in its way from Copenhagen to Kalmar on Sweden's east coast. Although the hull suffered extensive damage, the remaining bits make it less preserved wrecks of its kind dating from roughly the same period as Christopher Columbus's flagship Santa Maria. Last time it looked at the world, Leonardo da Vinci and Christopher Columbus were still living. That is very cool. 
that put underwater look better than the ones on the surface after being preserved? Did you notice that? Yeah. Maybe for your eyes. Plus, it was bloated. When you now, this one down below is that after it's preserved, or that's when they brought it up. Well, that's what I was trying to do. The uh, video is on, and it's got the ads you have to go through before you can take a look at it. I was trying to see what it said about that. Yeah. When you have something that's that old, it's been waterlogged that long. Once it gets up, it can start to go pretty quick. Be future ready with Dell Open Networking Solutions, powered by Intel. When you can't turn the sound off, <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta hunt for it. So Johan Ronby, they show him in the photo seeing it underwater, and I, I, it looks amazing underwater. Yeah, I want you to remember this this particular one because mm-hmm. uh, I, I had now I, there's some links to a. Uh, a new submarine found, and the pictures are outstanding, but we'll go into that next week. Oh. Yeah, this, this particular website, we've run, a, we've run across quite a few good items. And again, these will be in the show notes. Well, yeah, I'll, that's, that's really nice. That millionaire one, that's, that's the one that has some links that you want to look at later, just okay. as a clue. I think the next Yeah, this one the uh Fort Cuban the
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.